0: Well, our sermon text, uh, again, we just started our, our study through the gospel according to Mark a couple weeks ago, a couple Sundays ago, and we are up to Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Even though it's a short text, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word this morning. Mark writes... The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This ends the reading of God towards You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. Well, you... you We've kind of said this before, but you might know that there are a lot of things that are repeated, sometimes in all the Gospels, sometimes in just the three of them. Sometimes there is an element or an account in those Gospels that is only found in one or maybe two of them. The temptation of Christ is found in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, And as has already been uh, hinted at this morning, Mark's account is by far the shortest. It's only two verses. And if you were to look at uh, at Matthew or Luke's accounts, they're they're much, much longer than that. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Both he and Luke go into detail about the specific temptations. Uh, Mark paints, uh, his his picture that he paints is a little bit, it's not different as far as uh, contradicting facts. But he just paints it a different way. Mark's account is clear that Christ's temptation was the entire 40 days. That it wasn't just 40 days of uh, we might get the impression sometimes that it, that he was fasting for, for 40 days and then at the very end he was tempted. That's not the case. He fasted uh, for 40 days, but he was also being tempted by Satan for those 40 days. Um, you know, uh, the fact that that uh, the other two accounts of, of Matthew and Luke they give those details, and in some ways we might find those details. Uh, interesting or or necessary for us to keep in mind here and it's not a bad thing Uh, but he doesn't focus upon the the specific temptations of Satan to Christ he doesn't focus upon Jesus's answers to Satan the way he repelled, repelled him and his temptations by quoting scripture you might know that all three times what book of the Old Testament did Jesus quote from when he was tempted Deuteronomy Not a book that that comes to our mind, probably not a book that we spend a lot of time memorizing verses from, uh, but uh, Jesus apparently thought differently. He thought the book of Deuteronomy, and we should too, because of his example was very useful in resisting the temptations of, of the evil one. He memorized and quoted from three times the book of Deuteronomy when he was tempted. Now, there's no doubt that you and I have a lot to learn from those accounts, from Matthew and Luke's accounts of the temptation. And if you want to read those on your own uh, sometime later today or later in the week, it's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And as if to make it easier to remember, also Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. I commend that to your reading. Um, and there's always a lot of that you can learn from the harmonization of the Gospels. People often write that kind of a, a treatment of the text to try to put all the details together. The, the other Gospels do shed a lot of light On what we read, in in particular in Mark's gospel and vice versa, they do help us to put all the pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, together. But I think it's important for us to let Mark speak for himself. I think it's important that we take the gospel of Mark for what the gospel of Mark is and what he wrote, what God saw fit to include in that gospel. Uh, And we don't want to spend our time this morning, uh, although we might find Matthew and Luke helpful, and we certainly do, uh, we don't want to preach Matthew and Luke, instead of preaching Mark. So I'm going to restrain myself, if possible, to sticking mostly to what Mark has to say this morning. Uh, We're going to focus on what he says in our text, as short as it may be, and focus on what Mark focuses on in his account of, of the temptation of Christ. William Perkins, the old Puritan writer, some refer to him as the father of Puritanism, he wrote an extended commentary that's almost redundant when it comes to a Puritan. All their stuff is long, right? They didn't write short books. Uh, but he wrote what's basically a commentary on the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, and I won't quote it so much here as just give you the title, as I found it interesting and, and uh, thought provoking. He called uh, this account, or the account of Christ's temptation, Combat. Combat between Christ and the devil. That is what he wrote. Saw it as, it's what he treated it as. And that's a fitting description of what goes on in Satan's temptation of our Lord here in Mark's gospel. Here, what is Satan trying to do? Satan is trying to put an end to the gospel right at the beginning, isn't he? He wants to stop the whole thing. Jesus is just starting his public ministry. He was just baptized by John the Baptist. He was just anointed and set apart and gifted by the Holy Spirit. He just heard the voice of his father telling him that he was well pleased with him and he was his beloved son and it was the start of his ministry and what happens right away the very first thing we find is he is having combat with satan this is in a sense you could say the beginning or the culmin- the beginning of the culmination not the culmination itself of what genesis 3:15 speaks of when it speaks of the enmity between Christ and the serpent that was promised back in the garden of eden in Genesis 3.15, there it says, I, God is talking there, the Lord says, I will put enmity or strife, combat, between you, Satan, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that's ultimately fulfilled where? The cross. But it starts to be fulfilled here in Mark chapter 1, the temptation So it's really, the combat is starting now, even though it's fulfilled at the end at the cross and the resurrection. And The first thing we see in our text that I I hope jumps to mind when you're reading it is the role of the Holy Spirit in the temptation of Jesus Christ. The last thing we read back in verses 9 through 11, uh, we heard the voice of God telling Jesus, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Back in verse 11, But now the very next thing we see, which probably if you're not familiar with the text so much, it might be surprising to you, is that same Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove now does what? Drives him into the wilderness even further. Drives him into the wilderness. As if the Jordan River weren't far enough out there already, the Spirit sends him out even further. In verse 12 it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, you might notice, you might not. This is already in the first 13 verses of Mark's gospel. The third time the Holy Spirit is pointed out in particular. The third time we see the Holy Spirit at work in some way during the gospel account. The very first time is when John the Baptist tells the crowds uh, that there was one that was coming after him who was mightier than him, verse 7, than he was. And that he would not just, this coming one, would not just baptize them with water, but would baptize them with whom? Not with what? With the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. John baptized with water. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit himself. Think about the power and the authority inherent in that statement about Jesus Christ. Think about what that statement by John, what that means about our Savior, about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is so far greater or mightier than John the Baptist that he could baptize and would baptize and bestow the Holy Spirit on his people. He could affect not just the sign, the outward cleansing with with water, but also what it signified, cleansing from sin, new life, and a new heart. Who can do that but God alone? That's really the implication of what John the Baptist said Back there in verse 8, the second time in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 1, in verse 10, we're told that it was the Spirit himself who descended upon Jesus as a dove at his baptism. The Spirit anointed him. You might know the word Messiah. What does it mean, Uh, the anointed one? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who anointed him as the Messiah, who anointed him and gifted him for his public ministry as our Messiah and our Savior. And we should be very careful not to overlook the importance of the Holy Spirit's work and his role in the life and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Holy Spirit was involved in just about everything Jesus did. Although it's one of those things where even when it's in the text, I don't know about you, but I tend to kind of overlook it. I see the words, but I, I don't think much about it. The Holy Spirit was involved in Christ's incarnation. We know that from Matthew and from Luke's Gospel. And the Holy Spirit was also involved in His resurrection on the third day. Romans one chapter, or Romans chapter one verse four. What does Paul say there? That Jesus was shown to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The Holy Spirit was involved in the incarnation, everything Jesus did, and even the resurrection of Christ Himself on the third day. Now the third time is in our text. The third time the Spirit is mentioned is in verse 12. It's the spirit, the same spirit who descended upon Christ as a dove, now drives Jesus out to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Now, that word drove there in verse 12 is a very forceful word. It's a very forceful word. It's the same word that is used twice in Matthew chapter 9 for Jesus casting out demons. It's the same word word that's used for casting out demons and later on in chapter 9 verse 38 it's the same word that when Jesus tells the disciples to pray quote, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest think about the kind of word that is in a sense you could say Jesus is telling us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would drive out harvesters into the harvest that he would expel us out there and get us to work, get harvesters out into the harvest to get to work. Now, why did the Spirit drive Jesus out into the wilderness? What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit driving him out to do that? It was to be tempted by Satan. Mark doesn't spell it out quite as, uh, doesn't hit us over the head with it here in our text. Uh, but the fact that he drove Jesus out to the wilderness, it doesn't mean that Jesus went unwillingly, does it? It's not that's not the picture Mark is painting. He's not painting Uh, of a reluctant savior, not wanting to go out and face Satan uh, in combat for our salvation. What he's showing us is that it was that important for it to do. It was the thing that the spirit led him very strongly uh, to do just that. And it might call to mind the idea of being driven out uh, to the place of temptation, the Lord's Prayer. What are, we, what are we told to pray by Christ himself in the Lord's Prayer? Not just forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but lead us what? Lead us not into temptation and to deliver us from evil. That, that could also be translated, deliver us from what? The evil one. So this, this has bearing on even the Lord's Prayer, or it should. Jesus, literally, was led into temptation for you and for me. So that we could pray that we would not be led into temptation. He was led into temptation for our sakes, for our salvation. In Matthew's gospel, he makes explicit what Mark implies in our text. In Matthew 4.1, he says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, different phrase than drove, but led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was plainly the purpose for which he was sent out there. Now that, that sort of ought to shock us, I think. You know, the old, what's the old saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. If It doesn't mean you shouldn't be familiar with the Bible. But sometimes the more you know the stories, the less of a punch it seems to, to have than it, than it should. In the context of what we just read in Mark's Gospel, in the previous verses, this seems grossly unfitting, doesn't it? It should. It should seem very much unfitting. Jesus saw, just previous to this, the heavens, what? Torn open, he saw the Spirit descending upon him as a dove. In verse 10, he heard the glorious benediction of his heavenly Father, saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And yet, what's the next thing we read? What's the next thing we read? It's not glory, is it? You would expect it to be glory. I would have expected it to be something glorious. Not glory, but suffering. Not ease, but deprivation fasting miraculously for 40 days. Where was he sent to? Not a palace, but the wilderness. And again, in case we missed the point, Mark mentions it twice in the span of two verses, the wilderness. This is where Jesus was to be tempted and tried. It was not a place filled with companions to help him or to share his burden in the fight. But it was a place, verse 13 says, with the wild animals or the wild beasts. As the New American Standard puts it. It's a place of desolation. It's a place of deprivation. It's a place of danger. When he says wild beasts, he's not talking about bunnies and squirrels. He's talking about things that you would be afraid to go camping near. It's a scary place. And it's also, lest we forget, a diabolical place. Because who was there to tempt him? Satan himself. This is a scary picture that Mark is painting for us. And Christ underwent that for you and for me, for our salvation. We should take notice of the circumstances of the temptation of Jesus Christ. One writer uh, refers to the surroundings of Christ here as the, quote, the anti-Eden. And I think that's a very helpful way to put it, because that's really the picture that's being painted, isn't it? He's, we are meant, uh, in Mark as well as Matthew and Luke, to, in our minds, we should, our minds should hearken back to the Garden of Eden and be contrasting and comparing Adam with Christ, the way that Adam was tested and failed, and his circumstances in that regard, in, in light of what Christ uh, had to go through. Christ came in order to pass the test that Adam had failed and that you and I had failed in Adam, and he does so with none of the comforts and helps that Adam had available to him in the Garden of Eden. Where was Adam when he was tested? Paradise, the Garden of Eden itself. Where was Jesus? In the wilderness. Adam, what did Adam have to eat? He was told, Genesis 2.16, that he could eat of, quote, every tree of the garden except that one in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he had all the other trees to eat from. He had plenty. He was not tempted by a lack of any good thing. That was Adam's test, which he failed. That Genesis 3 verse 6 tells us about. Adam had an abundance. Jesus fasted for 40 days. He had nothing. He was in the wilderness. And what about the duration of Jesus' temptation? That number 40 probably rings A lot of bells, more than one bell or two when you heard that or read that in the text. How long was he in the wilderness? Forty days. Jesus was tempted and fasted and tried. How long was the flood in Noah's day? Forty days and forty nights. Exodus 34, 28 tells us the second time Moses received the Ten Commandments, remember the first set got broken, he was on Mount Sinai for how long? Forty days and forty nights. And interestingly, it says that when he was up there, he neither ate bread, or drank water. Jesus is the new Moses. The first Moses also fasted, miraculously for forty days, and forty nights. The wilderness wanderings. We read a little bit about that this morning. Dan did in Numbers, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter eight. How long were the wilderness wanderings? Forty years. One year for every day that the spies went into the promised land, the ones that had the bad report. They were there 40 days to spy out the good land that God had promised to give them, but all but two came back with a bad report. They had to spend a year for every day in the wilderness because they failed that test as well. The well, number 40 in Scripture often signifies a period of trial, a period of testing, even a period of, of God's judgment. And here in the temptation of of Jesus Christ, our Savior, I think we are to be cognizant of that number. That number should make us sit up and take notice because we see here our Savior passing the test where Adam failed. Jesus passed the test for us and for our salvation that Adam failed and we failed in him. He passed the test where the children of Israel failed in the wilderness. He passes that test. And we find our Savior our faithful Savior Jesus Christ, passing a test where we have all failed in Adam. That's the part we have to get to. It's one thing to say that he passed the test that Adam failed. It's one thing to say he passed the test where the children of Israel failed. But in all that, he passes the test in our place where we all failed in Adam's failure and fall. Well, what's the last circumstance that Mark points out to us in the text? In verse 13, he says... It might sound kind of strange. He says, the angels were ministering to him. The angels were ministering to him. Verse 13. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever read that text and kind of thought, it kind of sounds unnecessary. Jesus doesn't need help. He's God. He's the son of God. I confess, I've read this text a number of times with that very reaction. What is Mark trying to tell us here? He's not saying, uh, like we might think, that such help is unnecessary. What it does is it points to the fact uh, that Jesus suffered for us. That Jesus truly suffered for us. In his book, Knowing Christ, Mark Jones writes this. He says, We will never quite understand what Jesus went through during those 40 days and nights. But one thing is sure, his temptation was was no mere appearance. He was brutally assaulted in every possible way, so much so that angels came at the end and ministered to him. If Jesus had simply relied on his own divine nature to sustain himself, there would be no reason why angels needed to perform such a ministry. Jesus underwent the most brutal combat with the devil for our salvation, more than we can even imagine by reading This text, his temptation was not a mirage. His temptation was no formality. The very fact that he could not sin does not lessen the suffering that it caused him for our salvation. We should be in awe of the fact that Jesus Christ would submit himself to suffering this way for our salvation. The salvation of sinners like you and like me. The very fact that he could not sin doesn't mean that this was not an intense form of suffering. This wasn't a great trial to him. The fact that he did not and could not sin means he could be the Lamb of God and pay for our sins on the cross. But the fact that he was tempted is very important for us to be seeing the significance of it. He suffered greatly for our salvation, the salvation of of sinners. We want to look at the temptations uh, of our own. It's, it's hard to read a text like this, even though it doesn't go into detail about the, the temptations. Uh, we have to look at our own temptations, I think, in the light of the temptations that Christ himself underwent for our salvation. If you're a believer in Christ, and also by definition, then you're also a what? You're a follower of Christ. The two are in some ways synonymous. Uh, let his temptation be a lesson to you and to me. Let his temptation be a great source of comfort for you who are tempted. Don't be deceived into thinking that the presence of temptation, even fierce temptation, even the kind that vexes your heart and soul, don't think that somehow that is a sign of God's displeasure with you, or that you are in fact somehow not a child of God in the first place. When you look at this text, these two verses, The words of the Heavenly Father should still be ringing in your ears from the previous verse. God didn't say, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, but not anymore. Now go get tempted. It didn't signify anything of the sort. He sent his beloved son to the place of suffering and temptation for our salvation. He never in that ceased to be well pleasing to his father. And so temptation doesn't mean... Even terrible temptation does not mean that God is somehow now displeased with you or that you are no longer a child of God. For our Lord and Savior Christ was indeed God's Son from all eternity and by his own nature. We are children of God by adoption, not by creation, not by nature. And yet he was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one himself. There's a saying that Jesus says about being a servant being greater than his master. Do we think somehow that we as the servants are greater than the master, that he was tempted and tried, but we'll be spared that? That is somehow abnormal if we're following Him that we should undergo temptation ourselves? No, if you're following Christ, will your path occasionally, not all the time, will it not wind through times of temptation, Even severe temptation, And trial. Would the evil one, on top of that, be content to leave you alone if you are in Christ and if you are being conformed to his image and if you have been predestined to glory in Christ? Will he leave you alone on that account or will he attack the image of Christ he sees in you, no matter how small it may seem to you? Are we not instructed by the Lord Christ himself in that great pattern prayer that we pray? The Lord's Prayer, not only to forgive us our debts, but also to lead us not into temptation and to deliver us from the evil one. Are we not told later on to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation? Why does Jesus tell us to pray that? Because it shouldn't surprise us when we're tempted and when we sin. We need forgiveness. We need help to not be tempted. And we need deliverance from the evil one, from his attacks and his temptations. Jesus prepared us for these things and told us ahead of time of these things for a reason. So don't be surprised by temptation. Don't be dismayed by temptation, even if you're vexed by it. It doesn't mean that you're outside of the family of God. It doesn't mean that you're not beloved of God in Christ Jesus. If temptation is affliction to your soul, if the presence of temptation in your life is is an affliction to your heart, if it's an affliction to your conscience, you can be assured that your faith in Christ is both real and God-given. Your faith is both real and God-given, and you are a true child of God through adoption in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Be assured that although Satan lashes out at you because of your relation to Christ, What does the Bible say? All things, even that, must work together for your salvation. And nothing, not even temptation, can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, the last thing we probably need to see in our text is the necessity of the temptation of Jesus. Why did Jesus, of all the things he suffered, why did Jesus have to be tempted? Why did he have to be tempted? Why did the Holy Spirit himself not just lead Christ into the path of temptation, but drive him there, drive him to that combat with the devil? We should know first that Jesus underwent all of this, not for himself, that shouldn't even need to be said, but for your salvation and mine. Without the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness and his triumphing over Satan in it, there would be no gospel at all. And you and I could not be saved. He had to undergo the same test, even, even worse in a sense, than Adam did at the beginning for us to be saved. Herman Bobink writes of, a, of three purposes of Christ's temptation. There might be more than this, but he writes of three temptations or purposes of it, uh, of Christ's temptation in the wilderness. He says, the purpose of the temptation, which occurred immediately after the baptism, and was repeated several times right up to uh, and into Gethsemane. In other words, he was afflicted by Satan multiple times, not just at this one point. And he gives three reasons. One, that Christ, having just received the sign and seal of his communion with God, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, would maintain this communion also in the face of temptation from Satan and the world. He just received the the the, uh, the sign and seal in that Holy Spirit descending upon him as a dove and it was a sign and seal of communion with God God even the Father tells him you're my beloved son in whom I, I'm well pleased and you I'm well pleased secondly that as the second Adam he would not break the covenant with God uh, but uphold and confirm it for himself and his own his own being his people us in other words he had to, to, to pass the test that Adam failed and he had to pass the test for us. He took that test and passed it in our place. Third, that as the merciful high priest tempted in all things like us, he would come to our assistance in all our weaknesses and temptations. I think that's why that's included in the scripture primarily. He could have hypothetically, he could have been tempted, and God may not have saw fit to record it in scripture for us. I think one of the main reasons he did put it in the Bible, is is what he says right there, we're going to see later on, the book of Hebrews points us to this exact, this exact thing, uh, this exact reason for his temptation, that we would take comfort from it. So Jesus needed to be tempted in order to prove that he would maintain his communion with his heavenly father. And in doing that, he secured a right for us To communion with God himself as well. He also had to fulfill the covenant of works that Adam had broken. In the covenant of works back in the Garden of Eden, God promised what? He promised life to Adam and to his posterity. That's us. How? On the condition of perfect and personal obedience. But what happened? Adam failed and fell, and so you and I all failed and fell in him. That might sound unfair, but we wouldn't have done any better. Adam was in paradise, and yet he fell. Jesus came and fulfilled that covenant of works, and earned life for all of his people in our place. He passed the test and fulfilled that covenant in our place. And in so doing, he had to face similar temptations that Adam did, and even worse. The third reason Bob Vink gives as well attested to us, especially in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus was tempted so that he might be, quote, a merciful high priest, and that he might be able to help us in our weaknesses and temptations. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things propitiation for the sins of his people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The point of his temptation wasn't that he could sin, because he couldn't. The point of his temptation was so that we would know he can sympathize and help us in our weaknesses, in our temptations. Jesus had to be tempted, and yet without sin so that he could atone for our sins, make propitiation for the sins of his people. If he had sinned, we would have no salvation. There would be no gospel. But he also had to be tempted so that you and I might be assured that he really is a merciful, not just a faithful high priest, but a merciful high priest, and that he might be able to help those who are being tempted. He's been there. He's been there worse than you and I have. He has felt what it feels like to be tempted sorely and painfully. Do your temptations trouble and vex you? That should be a rhetorical question if you're a believer. Does, Does your struggle with sin feel as a burden to you? Then you should know that Jesus too has been tempted in every way that we have. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it feels like to be tempted and to suffer under it. He's felt your pain, and he's even entered into it himself for our salvation. If you've never yet come to Christ for salvation, if you have never come to him by faith, you should know that he underwent all of this when he didn't have to, not just the temptation, but the cross as well in order to save not good people, not righteous people, but sinners. And he still stands ready and willing to save to the uttermost everyone, each and every one that will come to him by faith. If you don't know Christ, look at his temptation. Look at what he underwent to save sinners and turn to him by faith. If you're a believer, maybe you've been a believer for a long time, but you're struggling with temptation and affliction, No, be assured on the authority of God's Word that you have a faithful and merciful high priest. What does a high priest do? A high priest represents you to God the Father. He intercedes on your behalf. Consider his own temptations that he underwent, that he underwent willingly for you and for your salvation, and take heart. Notice the words also from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. To help in time of need. If you're a Christian this morning, don't let your temptations and your struggles with sin drive you from God. Don't let them drive you from prayer, from the throne of grace. Hold fast your confession of faith in Christ. Know that he sympathizes with you and your weaknesses. For he has been tempted in every way as you have been, yet without sin. And do the one thing. Do the one thing the writer of Hebrews tells you to do there that at that moment you feel entirely unqualified to do. When you struggle with temptation and sin, what's the one thing you feel like you don't have the right to do at all? To pray. And what does the writer of Hebrews tell you to do? The exact opposite of what you feel unqualified to do. Draw near to the throne of grace. Not yell from a distance. Not look for another go-between. Draw near to the throne of grace. For if you're in Christ, that throne of God is not a throne of judgment to you any longer, but it's a throne of grace. It's the place where the writer seems to pile on one word after the other. It's the place where you're sure to receive what? Mercy. It's the place where you're sure to find grace. It is the place where you are sure to find help in time of need. When do you need mercy, grace, and help more than when you're facing temptation and sin? And why is the throne of grace a throne of grace? Why is it a place where you can receive mercy and find grace and find help in time of need? All of that is the case because that throne of grace is where you'll find Jesus there. Jesus is the one who suffered and was tempted in every way for 40 days and beyond that, who died, who rose again on the third day for our salvation, that he might make the throne of God, the throne of grace for his people. So we can go to him in time of need. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us, even about the, the suffering and temptation of your son, Our Lord Jesus Christ, that it tells us over and over again in many ways that he suffered and was tempted even as we are yet without sin. We thank you that he passed that test, that he might be able to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away our sins and bears them on the cross, that your wrath could be poured out on him in our place, the wrath that we justly deserve, and that because of that we can take comfort from his temptation When we face ours, we can know that he is a great high priest who doesn't hold things against us, but who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Give us grace in our temptation, even in our sins and shortcomings, to not flee the throne of grace. Help us to draw near to your throne of grace, trusting that we'll find mercy there for forgiveness, that we'll find grace there as well and that in Christ Jesus we'll find much help in time of need. And we ask this morning, and if anyone here does not yet know you, that you would open their eyes to see Christ and flee to him by faith, that they too might know the blessing and joy of sins forgiven, and turning your throne to a throne of grace. For it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.